This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome, everyone, to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Judson Pierce. I'm an attorney at Pierce Pierce Napolitano in sunny and beautiful Salem, Massachusetts. And we're bringing you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters today with special guest Professor Michael Duff. I'm also honored to be joined by my father and the, the head and lead promoter of this wonderful talk program for the last 15-plus years, Alan Pierce. Alan, good day. How are you? Where are you hey. from right now? Well, right now we are geographically uh, apart. I'm in, I'm in uh, sunny Florida. It's as sunny <laughs> down here as it is in Boston, but I think a tad warmer. Very jealous. Uh, but thank you. I, I am uh, really happy to be bringing to our audience this particular program on uh, presumptions, legal presumptions, evidentiary presumptions in the setting of how we are dealing with COVID in the workplace. And I am especially pleased to introduce our guest today. It's uh, Michael Duff. Michael is a law professor at the University of Wyoming College of Law. He has an interesting background. He's originally a Teamster. He was an airline ramp service worker and uh, union steward. He made his way through college and uh, is a graduate of Harvard Law School. He is a nationally recognized expert in workers' comp, labor law, ERISA issues, and national labor relations issues as well. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today on uh, Workers' Comp Matters. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thank you, Professor. It's a pleasure to have you here and to talk about this very topical issue that we are facing as a nation right now. We're still in the throes of the last 52 weeks or so of this COVID-19 virus pandemic. It's affected all of us in all aspects of life, certainly our clients who are claimant injured workers. We've seen COVID claims here in Massachusetts and other states. Some states have provided some more protections to the injured worker vis-a-vis -vis the presumption. And I just wanted you to start out by talking a little bit about presumptions in general, the background of them, what other types of presumptions exist in the law already that we may or may not know about, and just uh, give us a little bit of background on them. Sure, Judd. Probably every lawyer has had some exposure to the idea of uh, presumptions, whether they know it or not. We have uh, the, the common one that I use when uh, teaching my students here in Wyoming is the presumption of death. If uh, you're not around for five years, uh, we're going to presume you're dead. Why do we do that? Because there are all kinds of legal tasks we couldn't accomplish uh, if we couldn't presume you were dead. And uh, that's sort of the, the most common one that you see in the law. But, but a presumption is, as it sounds, we presume that one fact exists or one group of facts when other groups of facts have been proven. So why do we do it? It's a shortcut. It's a way, uh, essentially what we're doing, what the system is doing is uh, saving transaction costs. If you step back and look at it for a second, right? If we really wanted to put parties to their proofs on uh, all kinds of issues that we, we, we kind of know that it's probably the case that the person is dead. 
if nobody's heard from the person in five years, right? Now we could put the um, the proponent of the evidence, the person who has the burden of proving that the person is dead, we could have them trot 50 witnesses up to the stand and testify, no, I haven't seen them. Have you seen them? No, I haven't seen them. We don't do that because the evidence is cumulative, uh, that's expensive, and the system for actually centuries um, has devised uh, shortcuts in a situation like that. And in the COVID context, the idea is probably, um, it's pretty simple, right? And what we essentially do is we say, look, if if you are a particular kind of worker, and we have to define that worker, uh, you've been reliably diagnosed with COVID, we're going to presume that the COVID arose out of employment, right? I mean, that's essentially, now there are other kinds, depending on the statute, some statutes might say, you're not just employed with this employer, uh, you haven't been working at home, let's say, over the last two weeks. We want to ensure that you're actually an employee of the employer, uh, that you've been doing work-related duties and so forth. So there are predicates depending on the particular statute that we're looking at. But it's the same essential idea. It's a shortcut. And I'll stop there because I could ramble on a little more, but, but let me stop right there. Yeah, and, and those of us who've been handling workers' compensation or related claims have, have become familiar with the concept of presumptions. I think it's fairly universal around the country. Of course, it could vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But certain classes of employees, such as firefighters or police officers, have had uh, in their particular accidental injury or death retirement statutes uh, presumptions for cancer, for example, for firefighters, presumptions for heart disease or heart attacks for police and fire. And uh, generally speaking, that's all the claimant widow or claimant uh, injured firefighter needs to establish is that he or she has the condition, worked in that particular occupation. Uh, when COVID hit just about a year ago and everybody, you know, as Judd said, the life has been turned upside down. In the workers' compensation setting, we saw a couple of things happening. We saw a lot of absences from work. We saw people getting sick at work. And when we went to our respective workers' comp statutes, we found precious little there that helped us be able to figure out how these claims could be proven when somebody who was at work became sick. Generally, they didn't become sick at work. And all of a sudden, more questions arose than answers. And uh, as a result, as these cases have now been matriculating through the dispute resolution process, Burdens of proof and standards of proof have arisen. So having said that, we did see initially, probably in the spring or into the summer, a variety of jurisdictions enacting presumptions in various ways. So I'd like what I'd like you to talk about, uh, perhaps as we, we delve a little more deeply into this, is the mechanisms of establishing presumptions, legislative, executive order, agency order, and the types of presumptions that were enacted and the, the, the types of jurisdictions now that are utilizing presumptions and what the history anecdotal uh, has been thus far. I know okay. I've sort of thrown a lot at you there, Mike. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, I'll, I'll duck most of those questions. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but let me start. The mechanisms of creating the presumptions are interesting because they fall into three clusters, really. One mechanism is what we might most naturally expect. The legislature passes a law 
And within the statutory enactment is a presumption. A presumption is created by statute, right? That's what we would be accustomed to seeing in any kind of um, workers' compensation, statutory modification. You'd have a statute. But some presumptions were enacted by executive order. Governors uh, simply decreed pursuant to a state emergency uh, that we're going to create a presumption and here's what it's going to look like. And of course, that calls into uh, question the limits of the executive's authority and so forth. But uh, but what I have what I've been saying to people is that I think in the context of an emergency such as the one we've uh, we've been living through, uh, most of those kinds of exercises of authority are likely to be upheld. The the real problem would be how long the presumption is going to uh, remain in effect. Right, that's when you could run into certain kinds of problems. The third method that we've seen has been uh, by administrative uh, enactment, uh, regulatory uh, enactment. So that's where we've run into uh, problems. Um, In Illinois, for example, initially a workers' compensation administrative body uh, attempted to enact a presumption um, that was rebuffed by the courts on the theory that it was beyond the authority of the administrative agency to just go ahead and create uh, a presumption uh, that seems pretty clearly to be an expansion of law. And then I think what we're seeing as we move forward is that a number of states that started out with, uh, say, an executive order, the governor decreed uh, the presumption. That's been followed up by statutory enactment. And I think that uh, most governors uh, would be uh, somewhat uh, leery of attempting to ride uh, exclusively on the executive order for a significant period of time. So it's not surprising to me that we've seen a follow-up by the legislature, essentially ratifying what the governor's done. And that, that all makes sense to me. Now, in terms of what these presumptions look like. That's really kind of the deep subject of my short paper that you referenced, Alan. Um, It's kind of all over the map because the presumptions, you have to read them very carefully. Would this be a good time for me to go through that uh, taxonomy of Morgan versus uh, Thayer Wigmore? I I mean, I know you're just sitting on the edge of your seat, uh, you know, wanting to hear. It's actually pretty simple. I mean, you know, uh, when we get away away from the the kind of dense uh, language that accompanies some of these presumptions, it essentially goes like this. Under a Morgan-type presumption, Essentially, what we're doing is we are requiring, so I set up the presumption, okay? I'm sick with COVID-19. I am the right kind of essential employee to qualify for a presumption because, and that's no small uh, topic, right? You know, typically first responders are in the group of employees that are eligible. Some states have expanded it to uh, healthcare workers. Some states go a bit further and add uh, grocery uh, workers, right? And we can all in our minds sort of uh, imagine what we think of as, uh, as being an essential worker. And I've been kind of a critic of this kind of fiat approach to saying, well, we're just going to say these people are essential workers. Because remember, if this presumption goes the way we think it's going to go, these folks are going to be eligible for workers' comp. And people who aren't within the class of essential workers are not going to be eligible for workers' comp. And the question is, how do we make that decision? Are we doing it through democratic processes or not? So leaving that to one side, if I'm reliably diagnosed with COVID, I'm the right kind of employee, right? Then at that point, 
there's a presumption that is established that my COVID-19 has, to use the workers' comp language, arisen out of employment or has been caused by the employment. Now, in the Morgan structure, what happens at that point is the burden shifts to the employer to show something, right? And that something uh, most commonly would be uh, to show that there is a, that the workplace uh, did not cause the COVID-19. So it's shifting in, in many ways, it's shifting the burden of persuasion, right? Now that's as tough a place for an employer to be as it is for an employee to, uh, to be trying to prove that the workplace did cause COVID-19, right? The fact of the matter is we're probably looking at some kind of a multiple cause scenario. And the reason we have this problem in the first place is that it can be very, very difficult to prove what caused the COVID-19 because the individual employee, the human being is exposed to COVID-19 in the workplace, outside of the workplace, at home, any number of places potentially, right? So, but the Morgan structure Actually, when we shift the burden to the employer to show that the workplace did not cause COVID-19, in many instances, is going to mean that the, the employee is going to have a compensable claim. That's one type of presumption. Now, another type of presumption is the so-called uh, Thayer-Wigmore presumption. Now, the reason this is so hard for people to understand is that it really is something that what that comes into play more often in um uh, often in federal courts but often in a situation where you have a judge and a jury but i'm going to tell you what it is and then i'm going to explain real quickly why the judge and the jury is important to understand why it sounds so different and may we may we just tease the audience uh we're getting to near our halfway point where we'd like to take a quick break listen to one of our sponsors and we'll get back with you right away with a fair wig more approach. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. And we're back uh, with our guest, Professor Michael Duff. Before the break, we left off with a discussion about how Thayer Wigmore presumption differs from the Morgan presumption. Uh, Professor, if you could just help us with that. I'd be happy to. And let me let me tell you, you can imagine how thrilled uh, my students are uh, to be uh, not so long ago. We were doing inferences and presumptions and the joy uh, that was uh, exuding from that uh, from that Zoom audience. I I just can't quite capture it. So essentially, um, with the Thayer Wigmore approach, what happens is that we have the same situation, right? We have uh, the employee reliably diagnosed with COVID-19, the right kind of essential employee. So all of those predicates are established, right? So the presumption is created. Under Thayer-Wigmore, the moment that the employer produces evidence, right, which if credited by the fact finder were believed such that it would rebut the presumption. So for example, I'm the employer and there's any number of things I could I could attempt to rebut. I could I could attempt to rebut that the employee was the right kind of employee. 
I could attempt to rebut uh, that there's a reliable diagnosis of COVID-19. I could advance a theory that showed that, in fact, the COVID-19 did not come from the workplace. Now, you'll notice what I said is advanced enough evidence, right? Uh, this is a question of the employer satisfying what's called the burden of production. So the, the employer, well, and we're not even at preponderance, okay. right? Because that because what distinguishes this is that as long as there is enough evidence that if credited could establish the employer's position. Now you'll notice I didn't say it was credited. This is why it's confusing to people. Could it, um, could if it could be credited? Once it could be credited, the presumption disappears. This is called a bursting bubble presumption. The presumption disappears as soon as the evidence that set up the presumption is met by competent evidence. Now, why is that so confusing? Why does it sound like that? In the normal situation where we're in civil litigation, the judge is screening the evidence to determine whether it's admissible meaning it goes to the jury. When you have a judge-jury setup, the judge is just saying, hey, there's enough evidence here that I'm going to send it all to the jury, and the jury will actually decide whether that evidence is credible or not. And if the jury decides that the evidence that the employer uh, submitted was credible, then essentially it destroys the presumption and the employee in this case would be in free space. Now that sounds very, it, it's actually irrational when you attempt to apply it to a single administrative fact finder operating without a jury. That's why it's so hard to understand. And that's why people get so frustrated when they say, well, my state's enacted a presumption, but it won't work. Well, the reason it won't work is because the administrative judge is in a position to say, well, the employer presented enough evidence to at least counter uh, the presumption that's been created. That's enough. The presumption goes away. Well, that's not very useful uh, to a workers' compensation claimant, right? Uh, because in a lot of instances, the employer may present evidence that if it were credited, would uh, destroy the presumption. So one of the things that I point out in that paper is that if you're not establishing a Morgan-type presumption, meaning that the burden actually shifts to the employer to prove that the COVID-19 didn't uh, arise in the workplace, then you're, you, you really don't have potentially what you think you have. You could have a presumption that in practical operation is going to result in denied claims. And this is an incredibly serious point because I just saw, maybe you guys saw uh, recently, um, the Star Tribune in Minneapolis reported that out of uh, 734 claims that were filed in Minnesota meat packing plants, guess how many claims prevailed uh, without the burden of the, uh, without the benefit of the, of the uh, presumption? None. Zero. Yeah. Zero. Right now, I have a, I could talk about that too. I have something to say about that, but but um, awful. But it's you know, uh, and so if you're if the if the presumption isn't one of these presumptions that is very clearly shifting the burden to the employer to demonstrate that the disease didn't occur in the workplace, so the burden of proof shifts to the employer. And by the way, in the cancer presumptions that uh, Alan you mentioned. The burdens are, are pretty carefully tailored uh, to be like Morgan presumptions, right? Where the employer has to show that the disease didn't arise in the workplace. Does that make sense? 
It, it does make sense, which is, is this an accurate shortcut that the difference between Morgan versus Thayer Wigmore is essentially the difference between a rebuttable presumption and a conclusive presumption? Is that an easier way to understand it or no, is it I more subtle than both, that? I think they're both rebuttable presumptions, right? An irrebuttable presumption or a conclusive presumption would be that once the employee, let's keep it in the context of COVID-19, the employee shows that they're the right kind of employee, that they're reliably diagnosed, right? And so the presumption kicks in. An irrebuttable or conclusive presumption would mean there's nothing the employer carrier could say to prevail in the claim. The employee wins at that point. With a rebuttable presumption, uh, even the Thayer Wigmore, uh, the employer has to say something. The employer carrier has to produce evidence in opposition uh, to the presumption that's been created. I mean, one way to think about Morgan presumptions and why it's uh, especially valuable to claimants is that under Morgan, once you set up the presumption in the way we've been discussing, where you have the right kind of employee, the COVID-19 diagnosis and so forth, that is positive evidence of causation. This is another way to think about it. So even if the judge completely discredited every other piece of evidence that the employee presented, there would be positive evidence of causation in the record, right? Then the burden would shift to the employer that would have to prove that the COVID didn't come from the workplace. So you see how valuable that is. Mm -hmm. It's quite an important distinction. All right. So, you know, when we actually look at the different presumptions that have been enacted, what is the language? Um, you know, these presumptions that are legislated or, or, or devised by executive order don't say this is a Taylor Wigmore presumption versus this is a more. What is the language that we should look for or lobby for when presumptive language is being drafted to be able to distinguish Thayer Wigmore from Morgan? Well, they're all over the map. And in fact, I did a blog post not long ago on the uh, Illinois presumption. I actually, I mentioned it in my short paper as well, where you have things like, well, one of the things that would rebut the presumption is uh, whether the employer is complying with safety directives, right? Uh, of course, my snide retort to that a few months ago is like, what safety regulations? <laughs> we didn't even have an OSHA uh, temporary standard. So that is a problem. I mean, the first thing I would say is, uh, in a way, that's not even really a true uh, causation presumption because that's speaking to something like negligence. The employer was being super careful, is really to, to put it in layperson's terms. The employer is being super careful. So that's enough to rebut the presumption. That's nonsense. That has nothing to do with causation at all. So I think the first thing that advocates should be thinking about is to make sure that the presumption is couched exclusively in terms of causation. Uh, whether somebody is or is not complying with a safety regulation strikes me as irrelevant in a no-fault statute, right? It's just a way to import, um, you know, negligence standards into workers' comp, which, uh, which I vehemently uh, oppose. But I think the other thing, Alan, whether we're calling something Morgan or Thayer Wigmore, is to make clear that the burden is sh being shifted to the employer once that presumption's been established uh, to present evidence and to have to prevail on the question of causation in the workplace. In other words, the presumption should say something like uh, the employer has the burden to show that the COVID-19 did not arise in the workplace. I mean, it, it can be very straightforward. I think uh, in terms of statutes that I've seen, I think Minnesota's 
uh, rebuttal language is pretty good. I think New Jersey's rebuttal language is pretty good. Now, understand, when I say pretty good, I'm fully aware that the counter to everything we're saying is, well, when you say pretty good, Professor Duff, what you mean is that there's going to be all this expense heaped upon insurance carriers and employers and the system and so forth. And I have answers to that. But uh, but we're just talking about if you want to accomplish what the presumptions are supposed to accomplish, that's how I think they have to be structured. How many states have enacted presumptions, if you know? Well, in uh, in John uh, Burton's paper, I think he identified 16. I just noticed that uh, Virginia has one going to the governor's desk uh, as we speak. I think we're in the 17, 18 range. I tend to cheat and uh, look at the NCCI figures. Uh, they have uh, they ha they keep track of this very well. But we're in the 16, 17, 18 neighborhood, and you know my guess is. When you start having numbers like the ones that I uh, quoted from Minnesota, uh, there's going to be increasing pressure to do something. Now, people who say workers' compensation was never meant to do this, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, the fact of the matter is that we don't have a short-term disability program in this country. That's just the fact. You know, we don't, we have very poor mechanisms to deal with partial disability or even total disability that lasts for longer than a year. So this pressure is going to continue unless we get congressional action that establishes some kind of a, um, a durable fund to compensate these kinds of cases. I think you're going to continue uh, to get the pressure. And of course, my response to all of that is, are you really going to tell me, see, I have a problem here. Here's the, here's the bias that I have. I used to work for a living. That's the bias that I have, all right? And so you're going to tell me that these meatpacking employees who are crawling over each other in a conjugate workplace, coughing on each other, sneezing on each other with animal parts flying around, you're going to tell me that work didn't increase the risk of contracting COVID-19? That's nonsense. I understand that the system treats these claims in that way, but that just means we have to do a better job in articulating what we really mean by arising out of. The problem is workers' compensation causation language. And interestingly, in tort law, we've moved past that. I also teach torts. Uh, so we have uh, the, one of the problems we have is that we're not being clear enough in articulating workers' compensation causation theories. I think we can be clearer. Yeah, and one other thing that we didn't touch upon and probably could be the subject of another podcast is that in addition to proving causation for pandemic-related uh, widespread illnesses, many states have exclusions for contagious or infectious diseases. And Massachusetts, for example, presumption or no presumption, we have a statute that says if you contract a contagious or infectious disease in the workplace, it's only compensable if the risk of that disease is inherent in the employment, which lets out a whole variety of meatpacking employees, retail employees, et cetera. So that I think there needs to be a look, uh, you know, a look at those statutes, especially in a pandemic situation. Oh, right. Because, because the whole idea of something being inherent in employment means inherent when? Inherent right. in uh, 1914, uh, 17, uh, you know, what do, it, it's inherent in the employment now because I got to go to work and there's COVID and people coughing on me all over the workplace. So that's a sliding calculus. And Alan, if I may, real quick, one of my pet peeves, I'm going to be talking about this in a conference in a couple of weeks, is that if you cut off the injured employee in the way that you're describing, right? So now you have a provision that says contagious disease, you're not covered, period. You conjoin that 
with civil immunity uh, laws that are being passed by states. Now you've got a worker that has no workers' comp claim by operation of law and can't file a civil suit by operation of state law. And I don't know, a lot of state constitutions that I'm aware of say something like you have a right to a remedy. I think that comes for you Massachusetts guys from uh, John Adams' uh, Constitution of 1780. So I feel on pretty firm ground, uh, you know, subscribing to those principles. So getting into the constitutional question, Professor, would this be an issue of of constitutional challenge potentially in some of these states? I think it is. And in fact, uh, that's that's largely what I'm working on right now. And speaking of that, you made reference a couple of times uh, to your paper and uh, also to a paper John Burton wrote. Uh, for those of you who would like to really dig into this with more depth, I would highly recommend John Burton's uh, treatise on this subject, as well as uh, Professor Duff's uh, article, if you would like a copy. You can certainly contact Judd or me. Uh, we can be reached at A Pierce, A P I E R C E, at pplaw.com, or Judd is J Pierce at pplaw.com. Send us an email and we will send you out these uh, very helpful, illuminating articles, which begin to answer some of the questions that are have arisen over the last year. Uh, Professor Duff, any last words before we thank you and uh, sign off? Uh, only that we're not done with this now. Uh, so I know that people want to be done with the uh, pandemic and done with these issues. But uh, if I had to guess, I'd say we're about halfway through. Yeah, it's interesting, Professor. We're having the conversation in Massachusetts this week about getting our kids back to school because our numbers are finally slowing down and less hospitalizations and such. And the governor came right out and said that yesterday. And a lot of teachers, a lot of parents are concerned. We're not over this yet. And the vaccines are rolling out very slowly for all of us. And so there really hasn't been a whole lot that's changed in these last 52 weeks since uh, our world as we knew it came to a halt. We really do need something either in the law or a new commission, as you suggested, enacted to, to study how we're going to deal with these things in the future. It may not be a SARS type of pandemic. It'll be another virus that afflicts us or something as a result of climate change, for instance. And we need to have our laws updated to reflect more of that, right? Right. I agree. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Alan, uh, for co-hosting with me. Professor, you have guitars and an interest and a history of that. I'd love to talk about that in the future. Uh, jazz guitar is, is a fascinating, <laughs> awesome uh, thing to enjoy. I play jazz sax and uh, would love to talk to you about your interest in Martin and Gretsch guitars in the future. And thank you so much for what you've done for um, the law and for the, your students. I hope they know that they're getting a great professor when you start to talk about uh, Morgan and <laughs> their Wigmore. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And uh, go out, make it a day that matters. From Salem, Massachusetts, this is Judd Pierce. And thank you again. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matter shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. Money, 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 money
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.